Last time on The Big Switch. For people like me and my generation, we grew up with the experience that nuclear power is not something invisible that is, you know, that doesn't emit a lot of CO2, but we actually experienced it as a, as a physical threat. It's now clear that the Soviet Union has suffered one of the worst disasters in the history of nuclear power. For the Germans, I think it's now much easier moving forward with the certainty of not having nuclear in the grid anymore. There is a debate in Germany around, has Germany followed the right pathway in substituting initially nuclear power through renewables rather than coal? The doubters originally were the energy experts, the conventional utilities. Europe has come together in a really cohesive way that must be really surprising to Putin because it's surprising to us. If you're an energy and climate nerd like me, then you know about the COP meetings. That's COP, C-O-P, which stands for the Conference of the Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's a mouthful and definitely missing a few letters in that acronym. But the COP conferences are where delegates from all over the world meet and try to hash out like a global plan to fight climate change. And usually there's a lot of talk about how we phase down fossil fuels and ramp up renewable energy like wind and solar. But something unusual happened in 2018 at the COP24 conference in Poland. As delegates entered the convention center, they heard this. That's right, it was a performance of coal miners who were in a marching band. Yes, in Poland, coal miners have their own official band, sponsored by the coal companies. And when you took a look at the performers, you saw them dressed in these traditional miners' outfits. I'm talking black pants, black jackets, and then there was like this poof of color with this red feather poking out of the top of their black hats. And if you watch the videos of this, you can see dozens of international climate negotiators walking past this band. And some stop to snap some photos, and others just ignore them completely. But at COP24, coal was hard to ignore. And when Polish President Andrzej Duda stepped on stage to give his welcoming remarks for the more than 20,000 government officials and climate activists who were in attendance, he highlighted the country's most important natural resource, coal. By the way, the conference itself wasn't held in Warsaw, which is Poland's capital. COP24 was actually hosted in Katowice. It's a mid-sized city in southwestern Poland. It is smack dab in the heart of the country's historic coal mining region. And Katowice hosted its own display booth at the conference. And picture this. This booth was filled with chunks of locally mined coal and coal products. There was even soap and jewelry. But the president of COP24, he says none of that meant that Poland was only about coal. I see, Melissa, that you start with stereotypical vision that Poland is a coal country that whatever whatever we do uh, is is deeply rooted uh, in the coal uh, mining uh, industry tradition and interests which is not true this is dr michal kortika he grew up in krakow poland and he's researched everything from quantum optics to management economics he eventually became Poland's first ever minister of climate in 2019. But back in 2018, he'd actually never attended a COP conference before, let alone led one. So when Poland's prime minister asked him to take the reins for COP24, he was flattered, but also a little bit confused. 
As COP president, he'd be in charge of shepherding nearly 200 countries to a legally binding consensus on how to fight climate change. And honestly, he wasn't really sure he could do it. And the prime minister wasn't exactly reassuring. I said, okay, yeah, that, that, that's wonderful, but I have never been prime minister to any COP. Uh, you will manage. This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the director of research at Columbia University's SIPA Center on Global Energy Policy. This season, we're taking a deep dive into the European energy crisis that's fueled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. And specifically, we're looking at the crisis through the lens of Germany and Poland. And we're asking whether short-term plans to solve the energy crisis are at odds or actually in support of long-term goals to tackle the climate crisis. And we're trying to answer the trillion-dollar question. Will this energy crisis speed up or slow down Europe's push towards clean energy? And what does it mean for the rest of the world? In this episode, we dig into Poland's love-hate relationship with coal. And we talk about how the war in Ukraine has changed it. As Michal Kortyka says, A page has turned and the country is moving forward. But first, I want to go back to 2018. It had been three years since the signing of the most ambitious global climate treaty to date. I'm talking about the Paris Agreement. And when Michal Kortyka convened COP24 that year, the goal of the conference was to implement it. On the surface, it seemed like a straightforward proposition. The Paris Agreement adopted 2015, but it was only a couple of pages. But those couple of pages... Well, they had to be turned into this much more detailed rulebook of how exactly the world was going to achieve the goals that were laid out in the Paris Agreement. And these were not small goals. And it is. It's a unique experience because you are confronted with, with getting 196 parties aligned. And so it's an, it's an amazing uh, exercise of leadership, integrity, because you cannot, uh, uh, let's say, be an egocentric. And, and still you want. You have ambitions, you, have, you want things to progress, you want things to, to, to develop. So keeping a balance between the progress and, and the reality of this process is, is an extremely complicated exercise. The reality of this process is how the band of coal miners came to perform at a climate conference. To get the whole world to agree to phase down carbon emissions, Kortika says that the whole world needed to be in the room. And that included coal miners. We need to look at the energy policy with, uh, with eyes of different groups. And uh, for many communities in Silesia, uh, the mining industry was something which goes beyond just an, an employment. It's a culture. Father was a miner, son is, 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 has become a miner. And they are proud of this tradition. They cultivate it. Uh, they, they have the bands. Uh, and, we, and, and regularly in December, there are, there are feasts associated with, uh, with this. You have uh, uh, also dedicated places where people live, um, etc. So it's, it's, it's a whole culture. And I think it's, it's important to see that sometimes um, it's, it's not about coal. <laughs> it's about the culture of a community. And if there's anything harder to change than an energy system, it's a culture, a community sense of who they are and where they come from. So rather than try and change the culture and the communities in Poland's coal countries, Kortyka decided to work with their interests to ensure that Poland's clean energy transition was a just one. So I think the idea of just transition is also a very pragmatic way of making sure that we 
take everybody on board, that nobody is left behind, that the final objective is clear. But the way we progress, we, we really make sure that everybody is, is on board. And as it turns out, Cortica's strategy of measured ambition with consensus building at COP24 really paid off. Breaking news out of Poland. After days of negotiation, delegates from nearly 200 nations have reached an agreement to put the 2015 Paris Climate Treaty into action. So even though some climate advocates will say that it didn't go far enough, the reality is that COP24 ended up with this detailed 100-plus page compromise. That meant that we finally had a roadmap in place for the world to meet Paris Agreement goals. And this COP in Katowice is remembered by the climate community as, as one of the most successful COPs uh, and also uh, one of the most friendly and one of the most impactful Absolutely. I will say um, I was living in Japan at the time and I remember reading it and watching the progress and the big impact that you're saying. I mean, that was felt through the community. Like it was okay. These are real conversations. This is real progress happening here. It was incredibly impressive. Yes, indeed. Again, it lay ground for implementation of Paris. Without Katowice, there would not have been Paris. So thanks in part to COP24, the world has a plan to bring down carbon emissions. And Poland, it had a plan of its own. But the challenge for Poland was where it was going to start from. You remember back in episode one when we talked through how historically coal was king in Europe, and especially in Poland and Germany. Well, coal still dominates Poland's energy system today. Overall, coal represents 70% of Poland's electricity generation. And before Russia invaded Ukraine last year, about a third of Polish households relied on burning coal for heat in the winter. And that's really bad for climate, of course, but it can also make the air really hazardous to breathe. We have in mind um, also thousands of people paying um, health costs linked with uh, coal pollution. So this is why... We developed an energy strategy. During the winters, Polish cities can sometimes rank as the most polluted places on Earth. Around 45,000 people die prematurely each and every year in Poland due to this poor air quality. And many of these deaths are attributable to coal burning. So in early 2022, Poland's reliance on coal was already a problem. But it got much more dire when Russia invaded Ukraine. After the invasion, Poland joined with the rest of the EU in limiting the purchase of Russian fossil fuels, and it was an attempt to starve Putin's war machine of cash. But for Poland, it meant something really practical, which was an all-out ban on the import of coal from Russia. And this coal was largely being used to heat people's homes, including some of Poland's poorest households. After banning Russian coal imports this year, Poland faces a shortage. Millions of Polish households use coal furnaces for heat, which leaves people searching for some of the dwindling supply. And so as coal prices skyrocketed, people started rationing heat, and they started burning anything they could find, wood, trash, whatever, just to stay warm. And some even risked their lives to make energy ends meet. Because of the war, there was a period when there was no coal in the storage depots. There was nothing. They were completely empty. And so people started looking for coal because it had gotten quite cold in October. There was already snow. This is Roman Janiszek. 
He lives in Wolbeczek, which is a historic coal mining town in southwestern Poland. And Janiszek himself was a coal miner back in the day, until the mines near his house closed in the early 2000s. And so when Russia invaded Ukraine and he saw the coal shortages directly impacting his family and friends, he went and grabbed his shovel again. We start by testing the ground with a probe. We stick a pipe into the ground. We find the coal seams based on old maps. We stick the pipe up to two meters deep. Then we pull it out. If the pipe comes up black, then we start digging there. Janiszek and others had started mining coal on their own, illegally, in the forested hills and agricultural lands outside the city. And Janiszek had actually been doing this kind of thing on and off for a number of years. But he says last fall, with these coal shortages, he saw a lot more people taking to the hills. And they typically went out at night so they could avoid detection. Once there is a small hole, we widen it. Meter by meter, we slowly dig down. Then we add a wooden framework. The trenches could be more than 200 meters long, and the workers would hide the holes by putting brush and tree branches over them. They also set up lookouts. The lookouts are women or children sitting somewhere on the road leading to the pit. They watch. If a police car comes, they immediately call the person in the pit. The miner grabs his tools and, let me put it this way, runs into the woods fast. Last year, one of these shafts collapsed while miners were working in it. And Janiszek said that everyone escaped uninjured, though there have been injuries and deaths in the past. So this is really risky work. But as Janiszek said, it's worth it because it provides a lifeline for poor families in Poland. It was all about replenishment every month. The same people called saying, Sir, bring 10 bags because we've already run out. The house is cold and the kids are crying. Janiszek says that the coal he was selling on the black market cost less than half of coal being imported to the country. Coal that was coming from places like Indonesia and Colombia. And he says that he'll be back to digging up coal this fall as the weather turns cold again. And when the autumn comes, the mines will start functioning again. There is always demand for coal, because homes need to be heated. There is no other option. Now, to be clear, most people in Poland didn't go and pick up shovels and start digging for coal after the Ukraine invasion. But Janiszek's story speaks to the fear and desperation that people in Poland felt last fall. It turned out to be a relatively mild winter, and so people made it through, even if their coal cellars weren't as full as they usually were. But that might not be the case again this winter. And relying on expensive imported coal or relying on black market coal, well, it's just not a good solution, either for Poland's energy security or for climate security. The challenge which we need to face as a country is not only how to phase out coal, but which capacities to phase in. Dr. Joanna Pandera leads Forum Energy, which is a clean energy think tank in Poland. She says that the country's shift away from Russian energy sources has led to some challenges for the people of Poland, but it has also been a massive win for the larger effort to support Ukraine. And it has moved the debate to this new question, which is how will Poland fill the gaps that are left behind with an eye for both climate security and energy security? 
I mean, in this 21 century, there are different ways to produce electricity and heating, and we need to use new technologies. So Poland is taking a diversified approach to these new technologies. They're investing in renewables, things like wind farms, both on land and offshore in the Baltic Sea. And they're also investing on the fossil fuel side, with the government building up its capacity to import liquefied natural gas. But perhaps the most interesting thing is Poland's decision to invest in a technology that's brand new for the country. This is a technology that the government announced last fall after a lot of hand-wringing. Hello, this is Maciej Mikos welcoming you to World Today. After years of planning, countless expert analyses and extensive diplomatic talks, Poland has signed a contract with an American company to build its first nuclear power plant on the territory of Poland. Poland constantly changes its view on nuclear and uh, it's the project which is under construction since 20 years. So uh, I, I, I know many people from this government who are, uh, you know, against and now they are in favor for Poland. Always this energy security uh, aspect and independence uh, was most uh, important. But indeed the political support for nuclear uh, now is quite big. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, it would seem, has brought a lot more people in Poland on board with nuclear power as a path to energy security. If you look at public opinion polls, you'll see that ones taken late last year showed that 75% of the population were in favor of developing nuclear power in Poland. You back up to just before the Russian invasion, and that number was just 39%. The Polish government has been debating nuclear power for decades. It even started to build a nuclear power plant back in the 80s. But construction was scrapped after the Chernobyl disaster in neighboring Ukraine. And interest in nuclear power didn't really pick up until last year. And with the flow of Russian fossil fuels cut off, the Polish government announced that it signed this deal to build the country's first two nuclear plants. And by 2040, Poland aims to get about a quarter of its energy from nuclear power. For a country that doesn't have an existing nuclear program, it's a huge commitment. David Durham is president of Energy Systems at Westinghouse. This is a U.S.-based nuclear company that's building Poland's first reactor. As a nuclear guy, he's really excited to see Poland embracing the tech. But he's cautious, because it's going to be a big job. You have to educate workforce over many years. You need nuclear engineers, and you want them to be your people, not just all expatriates coming in for short periods of time. So you need to create those nuclear engineering programs. You need to create a utility to actually operate <laughs> the reactors. You need to create a, a regulatory body to license and oversee the operation of the reactors. And then you actually have to un go through the project. So it's a probably a two decades long process where you really make that kind of all-in commitment that yes, we're going to do this. Some other European countries, like the Netherlands, France, Czech Republic, and Bulgaria, have also recently announced plans to expand nuclear power production. But even as these countries lean into nuclear power for their energy security and climate security, they face a challenge. One of the biggest providers of nuclear fuels to Europe is Russia. That's a historical result of the fact that the te te technology came from Russia back when, you know, it was the Soviet Union, and they were required to... to to buy their fuels and services from the uh, Russian entities. During the Cold War, the Soviets helped to build reactors across its sphere of influence in Eastern and Central Europe. And Russia still supplies many of those plants with fuel and other equipment. 
Today, the country has by far the world's biggest capacity for uranium enrichment. And even before the war, countries like Ukraine had begun switching fuel sources. They were working towards using non-Russian fuel in their Soviet-designed reactors. But that's not an easy task. It's very, very expensive for another company to come in when they haven't designed that reactor to then have to redesign a brand new fuel core. I mean, it can cost up to $100 million dollars to design and license a new fuel core for a technology that isn't yours. The process is so challenging that even though the EU has banned some Russian fossil fuels, Europe still buys nuclear fuels from Russia because there just aren't enough other options. But for countries building new nuclear plants, they're turning to their allies from the start. Poland's first nuclear power plant will be designed and built by Durham's company, the U.S.-based Westinghouse. The deal was brokered by the U.S. government. Here's the U.S. Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, after the deal was announced last October. This um, decision on the part of Poland not only strengthens our, our bilateral relationship with Poland on energy security for generations to come, but I think it sends a clear message to Russia that the Atlantic Alliance stands together to diversify our energy supply, to strengthen climate cooperation, and to resist Russian weaponization of energy. In Durham's view, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has permanently changed the outlook for nuclear power in Europe. I don't see it going back to the way it was. I really don't. Even if there was a regime change, even though we're not supposed to say that. I think that these countries have, re- have realized that, I mean, this has shaken countries to their core, that it's important to know who your friends are for the long term. And, and you can't be dependent on countries that, that aren't your friend, to be blunt. And I think it's only going to speed up the decarbonization efforts. I think it's only going to speed up the transition to nuclear. So I think it's really creating a shift among the, all of Europe maybe one or two countries that are exceptions, um, with the United States, and, and, and we're all in this together. So I, I, there's nothing positive about war, but those could end up being positive results. To be clear, not everyone is fully on board with nuclear. Poland's neighbor Germany recently phased out its nuclear power production entirely, largely due to safety concerns that date all the way back to Chernobyl. But even for countries that are leaning into nuclear power, like Poland, that zero-carbon electricity won't start hitting the grid for another decade, at least. So even with all this new activity, it is still too early to say whether a true nuclear renaissance is coming to Europe. Here's Joanna Pandera again. We will wait for this project. It's expensive and it's time-consuming. So it's certainly not the uh, low-hanging fruits for our problems with you know, electricity system. The problems which we are facing are really coming, like in two, three, four years. So basically we are in the middle of energy crisis, so we need to build quickly new capacities. And the quickest way to build capacity is to build renewables. On the next episode of The Big Switch, the race to clean up the grid with renewables and install heat pumps in homes across Europe. 
The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. If you appreciate the reporting and storytelling that we're doing here, you can rate and review the show on Apple and Spotify. You can also send a link to a colleague or a friend who you think would like it. And you can find all of our back episodes, along with this current season, wherever you get your pods. The show is produced by Daniel Waldorf, Dan Ackerman, Camille Stennis, Anne Bailey, and Stephen Lacey. Anne Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand wrote our theme song and mixed the episodes. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Natalie Volt, Q Lee, Jen Wu, and Harry Kennard. The show is hosted by me, Dr. Melissa Lott. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.